Hello and welcome to another episode of the More From Law podcast. I'm your host, Harry Clark. This episode features Richard Tromans, expert on all things legal tech and founder of Artificial Lawyer. Richard and I discuss the intersection of law and technology, covering common talking points such as what the lawyer of tomorrow will look like, how the legal industry can undergo innovative transformation, and as well as whether or not lawyers should learn to code to future-proof their careers. Let's get into it. So hi, Richard. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. As someone who's been following your work for quite a long time, both during university and after it, uh, within the world of kind of law and technology, really excited to have you on the show and it will honestly to learn alongside my listeners about the world of legal tech and everything else, because I'm sure we'll both admit this. There's probably a lot of misinformation and hype information out there in terms of the reality and the future of law. Some of those headlines can be really scary and uh, a bit misleading in terms of how law is actually being used and developed within within law firms and within the profession. So it's been great to see all the work you've been doing with Artificial Lawyer to, to keep it real, so to speak, and to, and to provide some really useful in, insights into the world of law. I guess just as a beginning icebreaker question, out of interest, what sort of led you to want to work within the world of law and, and certainly with Artificial Lawyer and to kind of focus on this, this intersection between law and technology? Um, okay, well, I'll give you the quick version. So, I mean, well, I'll start backwards. I mean, and probably from the most, I mean, the past is the past, you know, the past is another country, as they say. Mm-hmm. I mean, what really matters to to your listeners is artificial lawyer and what I guess projects that I'm, I'm involved in now, which go beyond artificial lawyer. Primarily, artificial lawyer is there to try and change the business of law, both around the commercial sector and also the economic aspects of access to justice, which I think are also equally important. In fact, to some degree, much, much larger than the commercial sector. Um, however, get about 1% of the coverage. Anyway, the key goal of artificial lawyer really is to try and change the economics of the legal profession because legal services are, to put it very, very simply, expensive. And I think everybody realizes that. Even, even in the sort of very high level sort of city or New York world, the, you know, these are, that's a side of the industry that's used to very, very, very large sums of money you know legal bills with multiple zeros on the end so many you're like that's got to be that's got to be a mistake it's a lottery number (laughs) Uh, even there and in fact almost in some ways particularly there that's where people are starting to go hold on a minute this is nuts but we cannot carry on in this way we've kind of reached to some degree a high watermark and it's it none of this is is about being critical of lawyers people might mistake my criticism of the system for criticizing lawyers i've got huge respect for lawyers i've got huge respect for all professionals you know doctors nurses whoever the the problem is the system that has grown up with them over many 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 years many decades you could argue hundreds of years but certainly since the 1980s and the big bang and the expansion of law firms into much much more highly leveraged businesses the the cost model the fees generated bad habits around inefficiency the, the billable hour we can talk about that later it's all got a little bit out of control and to some degree the clients kind of were kind of a little bit subdued really they because the clients you're not really dealing with the real clients the real clients are the cfo the ceo and ultimately their customers which you're very very far removed from the, the people who the lawyers in the big private practice firms are dealing with are mostly people who used to be private practice lawyers in those very so very same law firms but are now part of this thing called an in-house legal team which in many many companies is kind of slightly detached from the rest of the business it's almost as if you've got the business there right and then you've got this long corridor 
like a space station on the moon kind of thing, you know, and then you've got this little capsule at the end and written on it says in-house legal team, bugger off. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do not come in here. We're doing important work. Uh, mm -hmm. We could possibly explain what either what we do or why it costs so much. Just leave us alone, please. We're, sa mm -hmm. we're saving the business. You don't need to know any more than that. Right. And that has been the way it's been for a long time. And I'm, I'm simplifying, obviously, but that is a general rule. That's not a million miles away from the truth. The, the fundamental problem is how do you unpick that? So technology, technology became more and more part of this because once an industry, you might say, plateaus out in terms of what it can achieve with human effort, then, you know, where else do you go? You've got to embrace technology. You can't just try and use cheaper and cheaper people. You can't just, you can't, like, you couldn't outsource everything that, say, Clifford Chance does or Baker McKenzie does to the Philippines. You know, you, some of it you can, but some of it you can't. Certainly not the, you know, some of the more valuable work. The, you get to this point where if you're going to change the formula, you've got to bring in technology. And that people started talking about it not so much in terms of as, a, as an aid, as a convenience, as a basic kind of hygiene factor, you know, like Microsoft Word and so forth, but a whole plethora of different types of technology that can actually help with the production of work in a sort of meaningful way. So different types of automation would be a classic example. There's many types. We can talk about that in a minute. Once you start to do that, the problem is, is that with such a artisanal manual profession that makes its money by selling time, right? As soon as you get into that, it really sets hairs racing and people start to go, hold on, you're talking about replacing us. And then that got a little bit out of control, maybe sort of five, 10 years ago. It was like an atom bomb going off really. And with all the sudden expansion of uh, machine learning technology, everyone just jumped to the wrong conclusion, which was, <laughs> oh my God, this stuff is going to replace us. Which is not the point. Fundamental point is to enable lawyers to be lawyers again, to allow lawyers to be what they're good at and to extract all of that process and crystallize it and maybe use different types of legal labor, which might not be regulated lawyers all different kinds of kinds of different business models the and so you might say okay where is he going with all of this the point is is that fundamentally it's about <clears throat> allowing lawyers to continue to be lawyers whilst using technology to make the legal services market much much more affordable and to cut away all that waste to enable both corporates to spend their money wisely and not waste capital on paying for things they don't need to pay for and in terms of access to justice, it's not complicated. People, if you go to a, an access to justice conference, it becomes incredibly detailed and there's loads of conversations about all various nuances. It's not complicated. You know, the reason why people can't get access to justice is because it's too expensive. It's very, 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 very simple. You know, if, if oranges cost, right, if oranges were 25 pounds per orange, right, very, very few of us would drink orange juice. Just wouldn't do it. It's very simple, right? It's just the market cannot afford it. The production, the production of this good, it's just so complex, so slow that it makes the end result very, very expensive. No one can afford it except a small bunch of rich people or where the state subsidizes it. And that leads to all kinds of problems like barristers going on strike because the government says, well, we need to cut legal aid fees that we're paying barristers and try and cut our costs. But then the barristers are like, well, you know, that's not really fair on us. We, we still deserve to be paid. 
you know, for the hard work that we do. And yeah, I mean, it all comes down to economic. I guess that's my key point, really. And for me, legal technology has no significant purpose other than to change the economics of it, because, you know, it, it, legal services are not a convenience. I mean, people talk about technology providing convenience, and it does, you know, lots of technology, you know, like a toaster, you know, toasters make breakfast much more convenient. You don't have to put a couple of pieces of sliced bread and stick them under the grill, and you know, and you always end up burning them anyway. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a double whammy, you know, you've wasted about half an hour and you burn your toast, and then you have to do it again, and it's never quite as good as a toaster. You get my point. That is the world of convenience, right? Law is on a completely different scale. You know, law is life and death stuff, you know, people's lives up in the air even relatively small things you might say like uh, you know probate for a deceased relative can create absolute havoc for a family you know these are really big issues you know, this is not about convenience this this is about making stuff affordable so again it comes back to economics and fundamentally that's what i'm all about and i think a lot of people might see the title artificial lawyer and just go oh okay he just basically is obsessed with ai and robots or whatever <laughs> it's never been the case the reason why AI, or to put it more accurately, in the legal context, natural language processing software that can read documents very rapidly is because it changes the economic model of a law firm. It enables a law firm to produce some of the key aspects of its work much, much more quickly and cheaply. And that's why it's important. And that's why I started writing about it and Russ's history. So I guess I've done the entire interview in five minutes there. So. <laughs> I just get it all out there and tell you. No, you've certainly covered a few of my talking points already, which is the, you know, the robot head, uh, lawyer headlines that we've seen recently, as well as a little bit about what legal tech is and isn't. I think one of the main reasons I actually wanted to really reach out to you uh, to speak with you was regarding a recent article, which I saw on your website, which was to do with reconciling this world of legal and money making and the kind of current business model and almost the, the disincentives to, to do anything with the bill of our model in terms of efficiency in that sense that, that I saw with the goals of legal technology to obviously make that more accessible and cheaper and more efficient for everyone. Um, I guess uh, just on your thoughts generally, you know, how can we go about reconciling the, the current goals and aims of law firms or legal delivery uh, service delivery or, or, or legal generally with the goals of legal tech or, or even just to put it more generally innovation in the, in the legal sector? Yeah, no, and there is, there is, there is a very, very natural conflict there, uh, which didn't used to exist because the vast majority of legal technology was, just a convenience provider you know it was a world of toasters you know it was a document <laughs> management system well that makes my life easier here's a here's the latest version of word oh that's nice that makes it very easy for me to produce documents and so forth uh we're not going to pass on the cost savings to the clients of course we'll just in fact we'll actually increase our fees this year uh, even though we can do the same job faster we'll charge them more uh which is why equity partners make so much money don't want you to lose your job before you even i won't keep going <laughs> <all about> <laughs> <laughs> but but you're absolutely right. But you, you're absolutely right. You see, you, you you put your finger on it. There's a natural tension between inefficiency of human lawyers um, who are not inefficient because they want to be. I don't believe that any reputable lawyer would deliberately, you know, go slow. Talk slowly on the phone to a client to drag yeah. out the billable hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like, oh, you know, don't use Bob. Bob just talks really slowly. You know, I mean, he charges double, you know. Um, <laughs> maybe with someone who does that but extremely unlikely but you know lawyers don't in, in, you know wake up in the morning and go oh you know how can i bilk my clients well mm -hmm. you know, certainly don't and and if you did that you would you would get drummed out of the city 
very, very, very fast. So it's not deliberate. As I said at the beginning, it's, it's, a, it's a symptom of the, you might say the manufacturing process, right? If you think of a law firm as a factory, it produces goods, legal goods, documents, uh, contracts, opinions, results of conducting a review and so forth. You know, these are products that are coming out. They, they have an actual cost, right? Work goes in, stuff is done. People who did that work get paid. There's a fee. Fee comes back to the law firm. Costs are paid off. Partners go, great. Hopefully we've made a nice 30% margin or more. Lovely jubbly. And off we go again. And, you know, adding technology makes that process more efficient. Shaves time off. This tension is solved by the clients, right? It's, not, it's, 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 it's a balance. It's a buyer-seller game, right? You know, it's the truth of it. I mean, as you'll find when you get to Baker McKenzie, there are pricing experts. When a big job comes in, you know, for smaller jobs, they might not worry. But if a big job comes in, they'll ring up the pricing experts. Uh, you, know, you know, I don't know how many you have at Baker's, but you've probably done at least one. And they'll say, right, what's the project? Let's look at that past projects. Let's, let's spec it out, you know, like a procurement person would. But, you know, they will figure out how much it's all going to cost. As if you were building a house, you know, what's what's the best way to do that work that will increase the margin for us, whilst not driving the clients away? And you know, it's a balance. It's like it's a negotiation. Even if the client doesn't realise that negotiation is going on, you know, the seller is thinking, right? How can much how much money can I make from this without annoying them? And that and that's what always happens. And then likewise, the buyer, who's a sophisticated buyer who probably used to work at Baker McKenzie, right? Or another big law firm knows exactly what goes on you know they're not they're not naive and they're thinking how far can i push this big law firm until they start to act as if they don't want to advise me any longer now you might and it, it depends i mean if you're if you're very very tough you might just say to yourself well look if i don't work with firm x there's literally a dozen others who can do the same job so frankly actually i will i will push them down on price and i will say look how you deal with that price is up to you. You go off and find a better business model. It's not my problem. I didn't invite, I, I didn't invent the legal world. You know, I, we, our company has a legal need. You go and fix it. If you fix it, we'll pay you. It's not our problem. And I think that's completely valid. And I think one of the fundamental problems with the legal market, the commercial legal market, is there's a kind of, and again, I don't think it's deliberate, but it's the kind of unconscious sense of entitlement that, inevitably occurs when there's insufficient market forces driving change it's a bit like being an aristocrat you know you know and then suddenly democracy arrives and you're like wow where did that come from you know you're like, <laughs> well there's actually some pretty good reasons for it and it's and i think that's that's kind of where we are now with with, with the commercial legal sector the, the the model has become i think fossilized i think personally i think it really is i think i think personally I'm, you might say i'm fairly out on the spectrum on this but i actually believe that the billable hour is an ethical issue you know it goes beyond i think it goes beyond just economics i think it's an ethical issue many lawyers would disagree with me but so i I believe that you know standardization of contracts very 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 basic contracts that everybody has every single firm in london is knocking out the same employment contracts the same ndas all these basic documents and why aren't they all standardized In, in the technology sector standardization is well standard you know, all that companies got together and went, why, why is everything different for every single computer? You know, except for maybe Apple. Apple has obsessively mm-hmm. tried to be different. Their own rule book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ever since Steve Jobs got started, you know, 
from day one if you read his biography he was obsessed with not connecting with everybody else but even that he kind of gave up on eventually by allowing you know integrations with microsoft and so forth anyway there are just loads and loads of systemic things that need to change and it has to be driven by the clients because why would a seller change their business model investing technology and so forth unless there was any pressure to do so businesses and so if you're thinking about where lawyers i guess are going to fit the actual people delivering those services and acting as the seller in this scenario are going to fit in the future um i think we've kind of painted a nice picture of how the firms more generally and how client expectations will will, will potentially drive change within the profession but i guess thinking about the, the the nice juicy question of the lawyer of tomorrow and what they're going to look like and what they're going to do um what are your thoughts on how the people listening yet to join the profession or those kind of practicing within it can both future-proof themselves for the purposes of employment and actually still being able to practice law, but also just more generally being able to, to keep up with any developments and changes and kind of if the, if the role of a lawyer changes, they can change with it as well. Yeah, well, interestingly, I, I've got the exact opposite view that you might expect, which is that I believe lawyers have actually become less like lawyers mm-hmm. over the last few decades. They're more like incredibly well-paid admin assistants who have a flair for legal language mm-hmm. and probably work much longer hours, but still, uh, you know, then many lawyers aren't really lawyers anymore. It's insane, really. People work incredibly hard to get through the, the assault course, which is entry to the profession. They work amazingly even harder once they get into junior associate roles. And, you know, it's a real battle. And you look at the work they're doing and you're like, I could do that. Or my, my, my niece, who's 16, could do that, you know. Uh, and you're like, this is nuts. This is how... how how is it that we've got to this point? Uh, my dream really <clears throat> is that we have a kind of renaissance in the, <clears throat> in the profession because what I want to see is lawyers going back to being great human professionals. You know, it's rather like, it's rather like with doctors. I mean, you know, let's say I went to see my doctor because I've got a bad cop, let's say, right? Go to the doctor. <laughs> and he sits there for hours and hours fiddling around with spreadsheets and all kinds of stuff. And then he hands me a massive bill because let's say it's, it's a private medical care thing. I'd just be like, wow, that's really not what I expected or wanted. I'd rather just spend one hour with you just right, talking to you and using your experience and you actually really listening to me and understanding my problem and then really, really using that amazing training that you've had to help me rather than wasting and sinking all that energy into all this other stuff that's not really being a doctor. And I think that's really kind of where the legal world has got to. And it's, I think it's a tragedy. Uh, like I said, I've got huge respect for legal profession, uh, all professions. And it, it's, it's sinking under the weight of its own inefficiency. Mm-hmm. And for me, technology is a savior. It can take away that and allow lawyers to be real lawyers. So I would say advice to young lawyers is, yes, read Artificial Lawyer. It's great. <laughs> and there are many other magazines to read. But, you know, being serious, yes, stay on top of technology be aware of it because you will be using it. But again, even on that point, the purpose really of technology in the legal sector should be to become invisible. I mean, you don't look at your phone and go, oh, that's a piece of technology. I mean, you know, we're doing this through Zoom and whatever. I don't think of this as technology, but it is. It's the end result that you're looking to get from it instead as well. Yeah, it's just stuff. It's like my shirt, this chair, whatever. It's like the shelf. It's just stuff. You know, it's just stuff you use. It's all technology, depending on your definition of it. I mean, a chair is a piece of technology. But, you know, if, if you were in the 13th century, this chair would be pretty advanced. 
you know <laughs> and and that's what it's all about really it's just you know the, the lawyers do need to be aware of the tech and in part because i mean this is this is one of the i think this is where a lot of the confusion and problems come from is that the, the lawyers own their own business right in, in private practice law firms they are the people who have to open up their wallets and buy this stuff right but they're not naturally focused on the use of technology to drive efficiency that's not what they were trained in it's all what they grew up doing they have tech teams but the tech teams at least historically their role was to basically make the law firm work so you know let's let's run the virtual data rooms let's run the email server let's make sure we don't get hacked let's x y and z right practice management stuff the billing system my god you know let's make sure the billing system <laughs> don't want that to break <laughs> <laughs> if, that, if that breaks oh dear someone's in trouble you know all of that kind of stuff right that's what they did historically for decades and then suddenly we've got this scenario of, of kind of like well uh, <clears throat> you know let's use this piece of natural language processing software to rapidly increase the speed of the way that we do a MA due diligence review which will inevitably have an impact on the economics of that deal because we'll have done it faster the lawyers are like well that looks like pretty advanced technology to me i don't understand how it works i don't understand accuracy in relation to machine learning and frankly i don't deal with our it contracts you know fair enough they you know they're busy people so they lobby it over to the tech team the tech team are like well frankly we're not lawyers our job is to procure technology to help the firm to operate not to make decisions strategic decisions about acquisitions that will change the way you work so you've got this kind of friction and slightly a dichotomy as well really at the same time in the the, the two groups the, the, you might say the technocrats and the lawyers are kind of bumping up against each other but at the same time there's no natural bridge because the lawyers obviously are paying the salaries actually that is probably an inaccurate metaphor that <laughs> actually is more right because the the lawyers are paying the salaries of the tech team which which is an interesting one as well i mean you know, you're effectively being tempted to try and disrupt the people that pay your salary in a business where you know frankly if a, a small group of partners decide that you've annoyed them you're, you're out how do you drive change in that way you see so it's it's it, it's a it's a real tricky one it's a real tricky one and uh, so it, it comes it comes back to the to the clients Mm -hmm. which is why we started to see these innovation teams growing up and you know some of the larger more sophisticated firms really understand that well an irresistible question i think i have to ask you as i've asked many other people kind of concerned with legal innovation um is the should lawyers learn to code question i think this has been rife with debate i've heard a smattering of different opinions on this i'd just be interested to hear your sort of 30 second answer for people listening do they need to or should they learn to code i i would just say yes if you want to i mean it'll look good on your cv if if you as if you're a junior lawyer and you take a seat as some law firms allow you to do with the tech team there may be opportunities to use your skills there uh, that could be interesting but the truth is is that well at least in normal times once you become a junior associate you'll be so busy doing deals transactions so forth the chances that you could say to a partner could i take a couple of days off while i fiddle around with python and try and build a plugin for this google extension whatever they'd be like i don't understand what you just said and <laughs> you realize what two days worth of, of your billable hours are worth plus we've only got five people on the team and basically no <laughs> so I, I think i think i think if you if you're looking to take on a more hybrid role and there are again it's not all firms some firms actively encourage 
not all, but some of their junior lawyers to work briefly with the tech teams or with the innovation teams or move around different parts, maybe go off to Newcastle and work with the process group up there and so forth. If, if that is the kind of thing that excites you, then yes, I think that's a good idea. I think if you're an IP lawyer, or you want to be an IP lawyer in the tech and software sector, I think learning to code would probably, I wouldn't say it would necessarily massively help you, but I think having an appreciation of mm -hmm. subject matter is going to help. Although, of course, when it gets to a big court battle between Samsung and Apple, the fact that you've learned, you know, Python basic is yes. not going to win you the case. So overall, I just, I wouldn't take a really strong position on, on either side. Really. I would just say, if you'd like to go ahead, mm -hmm. much as I think if you learn windsurfing, it would, <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I've got, I think wind, I'd like to learn to windsurf, but um, it's quite hard in North London, but, um, <laughs> but you know, I don't think it's a, it's, it's not a negative. It's a positive. Don't, unless you're going to go down the tech hybrid route, I don't really think. Going to you, know, that you don't need it to fend off the next generation of, of robot lawyers, put it that way. <laughs> well, and it, well, exactly. This goes to my point about the whole point of what I'm trying to do anyway, is to get lawyers to focus on being great human lawyers mm -hmm. who are supported by seamless and virtually invisible tech that enables them to move effort, effortlessly and super efficiently through this legal medium and deliver great, client service not to sit there fretting about oh i need to write some code no some people do that i mean I've, I've met some lawyers who do code and literally can sit there whilst they're doing their billable legal work and knock out little programs that are useful for the firm and they get lots of kudos and a pat on the head they're literally like one in a thousand mm -hmm. so anyway there you go i think i think it's it, it's you know to cherry on the cake. Hey, well, uh, extremely insightful conversation. I think we've covered everything, legal tech and otherwise, and a little bit more about the culture and economics of firms as well. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on, taking the time to speak with me. Where can people go to learn, obviously learn more about yourself and artificial lawyer and everything else we've talked about today? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, basically it's very simple, um, artificiallawyer.com. Um, I've just started um, Artificial Lawyer TV, which is effectively me interviewing people, uh, Rob, like you do, and doing product walkthroughs and other types of things like that. So that is all actually hosted inside Artificial Lawyer. But if it's something I could ask you and your audience, I mean, when I started Artificial Lawyer, I was very much focused on, you know, sort of management stream inside law firms and corporates and i haven't spent as much time as i'd like with junior lawyers and people who are moving up to become junior lawyers and i, I would be interested to hear what are the subjects that you care about what are the things that you would be interested in seeing more on artificial lawyer in relation to the world that you're in yeah i th i think it's just the well at first it's the fear driven from all these headlines you see about not having a job in 20 years time but no i just th think seeing real like real world applications of all of these concepts that are, are often talked about like you know the buzzwords of artificial intelligence machine learning and so on and seeing how it's practically going to make a difference in the workplace when i start that's probably the the main emphasis, at least, at least for me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, you know, to be continued. <laughs> next time, I'll I'll interview you. I think. I think. That sounds great. <laughs> I'd be happy for that. All right. Cheers, Richard. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to another instalment of the More From Law podcast. If you want to keep up to date with the show and make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and sign up to my newsletter over at www.harryclarklaw.com. You can also follow me on most social media channels at the handle harryclarklaw. If you enjoyed the show, please give it a rating and a review on the iTunes store as this helps others learn about the show and be sure to share it with your networks. You can also support the show by donating to my Patreon, which helps support the running and production costs of the show. For now though, I'll see you in the next episode of More From Law.